We are reading the entire book of Jude today. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who perverted the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in, in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious one. But when the archangel Michael contended with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the wind, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the glory of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. 
not to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. So now you see why I was groaning. A lot going on in this text. I have about five pastor friends that are on sabbatical this summer. Either they started before me and are done, some are still on it. I'm going to ask, did we all preach on Jude? Like, we all chose this as our text? And yet I love it. Because I worry when we come to the text that we think these are the old religious words. They may or may not matter. It's probably up to me to decide. And yet what's happening in the book of Jude is we see the Bible and the story of God's pursuit of his people as a dynamic large story, and yet with, with key people that are interconnected with one another. Do you know who Jude is? He's one of the younger brothers, half-brothers of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 13 and Mark chapter 6, he's mentioned. And in those instances, he's mentioned as one who's very nervous about what Jesus is teaching and, and pretty much tries to get him to stop teaching it. Now we have him worshiping. And what Jude thinks of himself, he doesn't think that matters, so he doesn't talk about it. He thinks what matters is that you know that now his role is to be an emissary, a slave, bondservant, agent of Jesus's. To talk about his affection for us, to talk about true Christian morality, that's in there a couple of times, and to talk about hope. Jude was writing to uh, Jewish Christians in the first century, and I kind of wrote in the title that it's one of the shorter books in the scriptures. I actually looked it up. It's the fifth shortest book. Third John, Second John, Philemon, Obadiah, all shorter in terms of number of words. But the encouragement is when you leave and you see someone who wasn't in church, who's interested in the Bible or spiritual things, you can say, you know, we actually covered a whole book today. We're very serious Christians over there at the... I don't say that. That might sound weird. But we did get to explore a whole book, as we did earlier in the summer. Jude considers himself a, a doulos, a, a bond, that's the Greek word for bondservant of Jesus now. This was his older brother. And as a bondservant, what he, the way he pictures himself... And you caught it there at the end, and that's the part of Jude that's read all the time. You now know why no one ever quotes the middle of Jude, because pretty interesting, challenging stuff in there. But the end is quoted all the time, because the gospel, especially when revealed to be true, as Jesus appeared in his resurrected state, turned Jude into a worshiper of Jesus of Nazareth. Now his... Uh, his interest in writing the book is not to talk about the resurrection. He alludes to it a little bit like Peter and James. He's not as interested in contending logically the way that Paul does. His book, in my opinion, is much more like Peter's. That's almost incontrovertible. He and Second Peter really were on the same page. We don't know if they were talking to each other, if he sat under Peter's teaching, if probably not the other way, but maybe. Um, but his agenda in writing is that the church be as healthy and pure as she can be. That she reflect, that, and, and by she, it's, it's us. Worshiping men and women who believe Jesus is Lord and are attempting to live in community with one another and in our places in light of that truth. 
which includes men and women that are considering the claims of the gospel and the claims of Jesus. But Jude's agenda is the health and the purity of the church. And the way that he gets after that agenda is with this flood of Old Testament references. Perhaps pun intended, I can't remember. In my notes, I actually wrote barrage of Old Testament references. And I don't know if that threw you off. When was Jesus in Egypt? Are you wondering if Jesus, like the three-year-old, destroyed a bunch of people in Egypt? You know, sort of some weird cartoon movie? Or is Jude actually doing something that the apostles were learning in the book of Acts and in the other books of the New Testament? See, they're all happening at the same time. If you look at a timeline, many of your Bibles have this at the end, you'll notice the books are being written at the same time, and they're talking with one another, and sometimes they appear in narratives together, as Brian Fitzgerald, my friend, referenced last week. Galatians 3 overlaps with Acts 15. Jude was probably there listening to them and learning from them. And one of the things they're learning is that Jesus has always existed. And so when Jude makes reference to Jesus in Egypt, and he's referencing both the Exodus and uh, the Exodus out of Egypt and the people of God as they were wandering around Canaan, he's saying that was the same God. I don't know if that reference threw you off. I don't know if the story about Michael threw you off. Some of you are very studious with your Bibles, and you're like, I don't ever remember reading that. That's actually not from the Scriptures directly. That's from some intertestament, what we would now call intertestamental Jewish literature, that Jude isn't saying should be in the Bible, but he is saying the humility of the archangel Michael is true and, and is worth noting. So that story, if you're like, I've never heard that before, it's because it's not in the scriptures. But Jude still wanted to bring it up. By the way, Michael's the only archangel according to the scriptures. Did you know that? So it's kind of remarkable that he's still humble and submissive before Jesus. There may be other archangels. They're not referenced in scripture. You can look it up. It's fine. I kind of wonder if the Jewish Christians of the first century were really where the Baptists get their flavor. Here's what I mean by that. If you've read the book of James, and if you've read First and Second Peter, and if you were listening to Jude, it really sounds energetic, doesn't it? I mean, just a image after image after image. I mean, did you catch the part where he described what these false teachers are like for the church? Just metaphor after metaphor after metaphor. Paul makes these reasoned arguments from Scripture. In the midst of making reasoned arguments, he also says incredibly profound and often very, very harsh things. But he'll make a, an, a sequential argument. But Jude doesn't. He's just going to write with metaphor, and he's going to reference things that are not in the text and things that are in the text to make his point, which is that the church needs to be very careful of its teaching. The teaching needs to line up with this whole story of God's pursuit of his people. And specifically when a teacher comes in and says, God loves you, and it doesn't matter how you live, that is an incredibly destructive distortion of the good news, incorrect teaching of the scriptures, and very, very, very damaging to the church. One of his uh, uh, images, I don't know if you caught him in the barrage or flood of images that we saw there in Jude, one of the images is, the body of Christ is like a ship sailing. And that kind of teaching is like a hidden reef. What will it do to the ship? Destroy it. And you won't know until you hit it. I don't know if the, these Jewish Christian men and women were raising their voices as they... Is my mic? Is my mic good? No? 
Is it me? Is it as good? It's not good. Okay. Thank you. That's exactly, exactly what I needed to hear. Thank you. I don't know if they were raising their voices as they thought about these things and wrote. I do know that they are taking poetic license, and, and by they, I mean Jude, James, who's Jude's brother, and Peter, to press the importance of rejecting these false teachers. Now, at the same time, I wonder what goes through your mind when you hear Sodom and Gomorrah referenced, because there are other kinds of false teachers that misunderstand that problem from Genesis 19. If someone asks you the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, do you know that you can turn to Ezekiel chapter 16 and you have a straight answer from a prophet and a prophet is a speaker of truth? Do you know what it says? Listen to this. Starting in verse 48. As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. So compared to Israel, not horrible. Verse 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. Now, is that the only problem? No. If you know the story of Genesis 19, they believed that they could live however they wanted, and that led them to horrific abuses. But sometimes when we hear those words, maybe not for you, maybe you're a more careful Bible scholar than the people who taught me when I was a teenager and who would reference these things very flippantly and very narrowly compared to Ezekiel who says the problem was very large there. A lot of people were killed and assaulted and especially the poor were not taken care of. So it's all of these things actually stem from hearing God loves you, do whatever feels good. That teaching leads to horrific abuse. It doesn't lead to satisfaction, according to Jude, and according to Moses, who wrote Genesis, and according to God, who did judge those cities because of their horrific actions. Thinking God loves us and I should decide, especially based on feelings, how to live, leads to abuse and murder and assault. Those are not the only illusions. Jesus in Egypt, the archangel Michael, Sodom and Gomorrah, but he also gives a couple of references in a row of Cain, that's from Genesis chapter 4, Korah, that's from Numbers chapter 16, and Balaam, that's from Numbers chapter 23. It's a little sad they didn't tell the whole story of Balaam because Balaam had a donkey who could talk. And the reason is he wants to give a number of references in a row. I'm not kidding. Read Numbers 23. Just because the book's called Numbers doesn't mean it's boring. But for Jude the importance of those three at the same time is these teachers are actually trying to accomplish something selfish. That's the link between Cain, Korah, and Balaam. They all were utilized in the story of God's pursuit of his people, but God had to thwart their selfishness to accomplish his purposes. So the teachers who are saying to these Jewish followers of Jesus, God loves you, live however you want, are trying to gain something. Notoriety, Money, we don't know because Jude is so mad, he just wants us to get the point. We don't know how they're trying to gain selfishly. We do know that's why he would loop Cain and Korah and Balaam together. And again, I want to say, 
well, let's just listen, listen to these metaphors that Jude gives. What is it like for the bride of Christ to listen to and follow teaching that God loves you, live however, he has no guidance for you in this life? What is that like for a church? They are blemishes on your love feasts. That's communion. As they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. That's how destructive it is. And Jude's point, and he's alluding to it more than the Apostle Paul, but he's still alluding to, or he's alluding to it, whereas the Apostle Paul would explain it, but he's alluding to it just the same, and the it is the gospel. What is the actual good news? It's the, the gift of God, which means entirely free, not based on any of our actions, is to be called by him back to himself and reconciled to him to know deep in our being that we're loved. And that didn't come at no cost to him. It came at great cost. And yet it is a free gift. That's why he uses the word called. That's why he uses the word beloved four times. That's later in my notes, but I was really excited to say it. What Jude is doing, a little more through illusion than through explanation, is reminding them that the power and the wisdom of God, begin by knowing that you're loved, then recognizing the cost of Christ, or the, the sacrifice and work of Jesus, and then walking with him the way that he has always described walking with him. From Genesis through Revelation, there's always a picture of the worshiping community as those who worship God and surrender their lives to him, as those who look to him with all of their desires, all of them. Skin, words, money, stuff, family, and say, Lord, how would you have me live? The gospel is God, uh, is God calling us to himself and then keeping us in him. Do you see that in verse 1 and then again in verse 21? That promise that it speaks comfort directly to our heart. And if you have not experienced that comfort, please pray. God, would you give me an experience of you keeping me in Christ? As verse 1 and verse 21 talk about in different measure as they bracket the book. And the gospel is in the midst of tribulation. Did you catch that Jude does just a little bit of end times talk for us? Sounds a little bit like Paul in 2 Timothy. In terms of how people sound, sounds a little bit like Jesus in Mark chapter 13 saying, it is going to be challenging, follower of Jesus, to live as he directs. The world will not honor it. It will not look awesome all the time. It is challenging. Jude, and I would argue Paul, and the Revelation, and Jesus would all say that we're living in the end times now. Not because of the sequence of events that the Bible tricked us into, or didn't, not tricked us, not because of the sequence of events that the Bible told us that we didn't fully understand, but because after Jesus comes, then we're in the time in between his first and second coming. 
And so when Jude says that, that the apostles talked about this, he's assuming that they were living in those times, just as we are. But again, what does it sound like when God calls calls us to himself? It sounds like this. Beloved. Verse 1, verse 3, verse 17, verse 20. Do you know that you're beloved? Do you know that God calls you his own? There is the work of Christ. We must talk about that. Sin requires judgment. That's the first part of Jude's illustrations is that God must judge because he does not long for his image bearers to be harmed by the effects of sin and death and the broken world and our own sinful tendencies. But the, the backbone of why this is such good news is him calling them what God calls them and what God calls you if you are indeed a follower of Christ. Beloved. Do you know that you're beloved? And I feel like if Jude was standing here, he would want to remind us what it does not sound like. It does not sound like live however you want. And we would appreciate his energy and his metaphors and his knowledge of intertestamental literature and the Old Testament. And for me personally, and I think for you also, we're brought back to the heart of the gospel in verses 1 and 3. And 17 and 20. Beloved. If you have said to Jesus, you're Lord, not me, you are beloved. And he encourages them to persevere in Christ. I love that it seems like he's remembering this as he's writing, which either means he was rhetorically incredibly gifted or he was writing passionately or perhaps both. But he realizes, oh, right, Jesus said this was going to happen. He said that people were going to come in and teach us the wrong gospel. And it was even going to sound close to the gospel. So often, a distorted gospel starts correct. God loves you. That is the beginning of the gospel. The beginning of the gospel is not your sin. Your sin must be atoned for. And it's important. But it's not the beginning. The beginning of it is God's love and his work. And then Jude has some encouragements for them to pray in the Spirit. This means in agreement with the things of God. So in agreement with the whole of Scripture as best you know it. Let me just help you with something. Christians sometimes get wrong. Can you pray wrong? Yep. What happens? Nothing. Except missing out on some of the rewards of praying in step with the Spirit which means a knowledge of God's best for our life, a knowledge of his promises and reliance upon them. Jesus repeatedly describes the reward we receive, which I believe is a sense of the kingdom, knowledge of our calling as an agent of God, and the peace of Christ. I realize now I'm riffing kind of on the Sermon on the Mount, but when Jude says, keeping yourself in prayer in the Spirit, I want us to know that there, there are ways to pray that will not be as powerful as learning to pray as Jesus taught and learning to pray as the Psalms model and learning to pray as the New Testament writers and preachers pray. The, learning to pray those ways will actually speak peace to our hearts, will actually give us a sense of our calling, will actually give us felt 
joy. And did you notice again in verse 21, he goes back to what he says in verse 1, that we are kept by God. To those who are called, beloved in Christ, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And then in verse 26, he says, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. How do we do that? For Jude, it was all about worship. How do you keep yourself in the love of Christ? How do you enjoy the protection and provision of the Holy Spirit in a world that is full of sin and grief and death? Jude would say by worshiping regularly here and in your own life, in your own prayer life and in community. And that's why we get to the part of Jude that is often quoted. It's amazing how rarely we quote anything before verse 24. Oh, there are a lot of books in the Bible. But verses 24 and 25, I guarantee, are being used at thousands, if not millions of churches around the world today because they're such a beautiful expression of worship. They're such a beautiful way of us keeping ourselves in his love, meaning integrating our body and our mind and our soul and our spirit with the promises of God that we know something about and long to understand more fully. This is a way of reminding ourselves of his love. This is a way of building up one another and our own hearts in his love. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. For Jude, even as as he's answering false teachers that said, love God and do whatever, the primary way we do that is worship. I hope that worship is a joy for you. If not, that's another thing you can pray. Lord, would you help it to be joyful for me? And if it isn't joyful for you, and you do it anyway, that is a profound move of leaning into the healing and peace and grace and mercy of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the one who calls us and keeps us. We are so thankful that you are indeed a good, good Father. That you created the beauty and nobility of this world that we hear in the birds and in the water. That you gave us freedom and real love and with it we harmed the world and one another. And yet we look to you now, Jesus, to help our hearts believe and believe more deeply that you are a good, good Father and thereby enjoy the joy you have purchased for us. Remind us, good Father, that we are indeed beloved because of the work of Christ. Amen.